Please excuse the interruption while I share some important information about the Sunday Morning Coffee podcast. If you would like to support the show, and believe me, I appreciate you supporting the show just by watching, there are a couple of ways that you can help out. You can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash smcpod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash smcpod, where for just four U.S. dollars a month, you can receive early access to episodes and subscriber-only content. If you prefer to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly donation, you can head over to buymeacoffee.com slash smcpod. I'm not going to spell that one out, but it's spelled exactly as it sounds. Buymeacoffee.com slash smcpod, where you can make a one-time donation in any amount. Your support does not go unnoticed. Thank you for watching. Thank you for your support, and I hope you enjoy the rest of today's episode. Very pleased to welcome Jerry Werner to the show. Uh, thank you, Jerry, for your time. I appreciate it. I've been looking forward to having this uh, conversation with you. Great. Thank you for the invitation. I've been looking forward to telling you. We're one day away from book launch, so this is an exciting day for us. Very good. Very good. Um, wishing you all the success with that. Looking forward to talking to you a little bit about the book, but I'm going to start sort of where I start with all my guests. Just ask for uh, a little bit of uh, background to who Jerry is, um, you know, where you were born, raised, etc., and what sort of led you on to the path that has you where you ended up today. Great. I was, I was prepared for that question. This is my <laughs> fifth fifth podcast in five weeks, so I'm getting getting more into the groove. Good. <laughs> yeah. well, anyway, I was born and raised in the flatlands of West Central Wisconsin. I uh, was surrounded by dairy farms. My father worked for the railroad. And when I was one year old, he bought a one-room country schoolhouse on two acres. And the schoolhouse came with a tower, a bell, a flagpole, two outhouses, and a playground with swing set. He kept one outhouse and a swing stand, but got rid of the bell, tower, bell, and flagpole. Years later, my two brothers and I expressed disappointment as why he didn't keep the bell. But he knew kids, and he knew we'd be ringing it and annoying their parents and their neighbors. So he did the right thing in getting rid of the school bell. The schoolhouse had no running water. It had a hand water pump out the back door. And that's as much as I got for plumbing till I was 10 years old. We made good use of the outhouse. I was the oldest of seven children. My father expanded the one-room schoolhouse upward and outward as the family grew. By any contemporary standards, we were poor, but we didn't know it. Our neighbors didn't have much more than we did. We never went hungry or went cold in spite of Wisconsin winters that could get down to 40 below zero. And as you know, as a Canadian, 40 below is the same Fahrenheit or Celsius. It's bitter cold. <laughs> um, like all children, I wanted to, to try to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. My mother wanted me to be a Catholic priest, but I wanted to have a family. I love children. My father wanted me to become an engineer, but I found that too boring. So what was the most exciting to me was America's space race with the Soviet Union going on at the time. My book begins when I'm 13 years old in 1961, and Alan Shepard becomes the first American in space. I didn't know what it took to become an astronaut, so you can imagine my 
delight when the Mercury astronauts uh, published a book the next year called We Seven. In the book We Seven, I read it cover to cover and took notes. I concluded that there are four major milestones that the astronauts all accomplished. First was they were all college graduates. Most of them earned their degree from the Naval Academy. Second is they acquired a master's degree in a technical subject like aeronautical engineering. Third, they were all accomplished fighter pilots. And finally, they were test pilots. So my plan became graduate from an academy, get a master's degree in aero, become a top fighter pilot, finally a test pilot. So that's where I got my start, Scott. Mm. And what, um, was there an event or uh, was it something you read in the newspaper that triggered your interest in, uh, you know, in astronauts and outer space and so on? Or was it just, uh, you know, you happened to read books on it? How did, how did your interest in that sort of get triggered? Well, these are the early days of television and watching the launches on TV was, of course, pretty exciting. But for some reason, I was interested in space and space travel, and I read everything I could in our tiny school library. By the way, my high school was a total population of 185 students for the four <laughs> grades, and we had a tiny um, library. And the librarian knew that I was interested in anything to do with space. I was very interested in Mars. Um, but when the book We Seven came out, she made sure she got a copy to me, uh, me first because she knew I would be interested in it. So um, I, I don't know where the motivation came from, but I just found the space race with the Soviets to be exciting and the idea of traveling in space was uh, more exciting to me than anything else. And you mentioned um, you were reading the book and it laid out you know, the steps and the uh, achievements that you had to have in order to uh, you know, live out that dream. Were, have you always been uh, someone that attacks challenges in that way in a very step-by-step, -step, okay, if I want to accomplish this, first I have to do this, then I have to do that, then I have to do that. Is that sort of how you've, uh, you know, conducted your yourself through your life is very plan-oriented, very step-by-step? -step. Is that something that you've always done? No, absolutely. Yeah, I, I will set a goal, and of course, I've had goals. This this book covers a twenty-year slice of my life. I'm actually thirty-three years old when I when the book ends, but since then, I have set other goals and gone about them in pretty much the same way. What is what are the steps necessary to get to the goal? Who who are the experts? Who's done it before? One of the sayings that I picked up along the way was, "Don't take investment advice from somebody who's broke." <laughs> Good advice. So it's also true. Don't take advice from when you're trying to set a lofty goal, an important goal to you. Don't take advice from somebody who was who never did it, and perhaps is not even capable of doing it. But boy, you know this, Scott. There are a lot of naysayers in the background throughout our life, telling us what we should do or shouldn't do, or why we can't get to the next step. I had to block that out. And of course, if you don't have that sort of blueprint that step by step you you can't really accomplish much if you don't know what you're trying to accomplish and in what order you should accomplish it you, you definitely need that um that blueprint before you tackle any challenge really yes 
I'd say my primary lesson from this book and from my own life has been the power of persistence. In our society, we pay a lot of attention to the quickest, strongest, smartest, prettiest, and most exciting. But what does it really take to be successful in the long run? The, fa the fable of the tortoise and hare suggests the fastest one is not necessarily the one who's going to cross the finish line first. No one who has ever dreamed really big accomplished any lofty goals by missing, by missing any steps along the way. They did not easily jump from step A to step Z. Or you and I are on the other side of the border, so I should say A to Z. <laughs> Nobody skipped all those steps because if they set a lofty goal, they'd definitely experience missteps, sidesteps, backsteps, and broken steps along the way. Some examples. Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, was cut from his high school basketball team. And while he was playing in the NBA, broke his foot. But he persisted. Tom Brady, the most celebrated NFL player, was not the starting quarterback for his college team. And then when the NFL draft came along, he was last to get picked. He was a third-string quarterback for the New England Patriots. But he persisted. And even someone who's established today and established himself as the richest man in the world can experience some significant setbacks. In the same month, he had a rocket blow up, a million of his cars were recalled, and major Twitter advertisers bailed out on him. If he's going to maintain his perch, I'd say he has to persist. And he's a great example of what we just talked about because, you know, Elon Musk has not one, not two, but many, many ventures out there at once. And he's not going into any of those cutting corners or skipping steps or, you know, because you don't, you don't get a rocket into space by, by skipping steps, basically. So he's a great example of, uh, you know, you got to have a plan. You got to have uh, your plan mapped out. So yeah, a terrific example. So let's talk a little bit about. So you're you're growing up in this uh, in this environment with seven. Uh, there are seven of you. You said seven of us. Yeah. So uh, you know, living the life as kids do, um, having fun, playing, and so on. So as you graduate into adolescence and then your teenage years and so on, are your eyes still on those? goals that you have set for yourself or are you like a lot of young people where you know depends on you know what day it is and uh you know what your dreams are what you were you always focused on what you wanted to do or did you have some occasions where you know maybe your dreams changed a little bit or you were looking in a different direction i pretty much stayed focused on my dreams although there were times when i said maybe I should be a professional baseball player. And then I would pitch the next game and lose it and say, no, that's not going to work. But I stayed pretty well focused on getting to the space program. Now, I came from such a small school. In my own family tree, nobody graduated from college. In, the, in our high school, um, they didn't send many people on to college either. Most of them went back to farming. And, and other things. So I decided that if I were going to get into an academy, and I wanted to get into the Air Force Academy, because it was brand new at that time, it was a shiny thing. 
Air Force Academy, I thought would be the best to get me into the space program. But I decided that I, I pretty much had to be number one in everything at this small school if I had any shot at getting into an academy. So I had to be number one in academics and sports and music, extracurricular activities. Um, but even then, with with all that, I still did not get the appointment. So one of the failures along the way was right off the start. I did not get into the Air Force Academy. So I had to persist. Um, I have a list here. Only what I wanted to say was working towards accomplishing the four major milestones, the academy first, then master's degree, fighter pilot, and test pilot. In the book, I lay out 16 different times that I failed significantly and had to figure out the next step. First, I didn't get the appointment of the Air Force Academy. Second, I didn't even pass the basic military physical exam the first time. I didn't achieve the minimum flight grades that I needed to qualify to fly jets the first time. And I wasn't accepted to graduate school the first time around. So I had to find a workaround every one of these and a dozen more. And that's all outlined in the book. And how did you deal with, um, as a young person, obviously, you've got this this goal that you want to reach. You You know the steps that you have to take. And then at the very first hurdle, you run into this. Um, this obstacle. And, you know, there's a popular saying, um, especially amongst people that think in the stoic philosophy, that there's a saying, the obstacle is the way. So meaning that whenever you get an obstacle in front of you, overcoming that obstacle is the way towards reaching your, your goals. So how as a young person, did you um, deal with that first setback? And was that something was dealing with those setbacks something you had to teach yourself or did you always have that resilience uh, within you? I think I must have had a big reservoir of the resilience myself, but that doesn't mean that I wasn't very upset and concerned at, at each time when things broke down and didn't look like I could make it to the next step. Uh, Air Force Academy rejection at age 17. Age 17, that means one year delay. One year at 17 is huge. Yeah. <laughs> and later, as I missed other steps, I kept getting farther behind in what I considered my race with some other individuals who I'd be competing with. And by the time I got to test pilot school, I was at least four years behind my peers. Um, but I, I just kept at it. I didn't... Um, it doesn't mean that I wasn't really disappointed at times or upset, but I just tried to figure out, well, how am I going to get around this? There's got to be some way. And as it turns out, some of the things in our lives that we think are failures at the time turn out to be actually the obstacle that needed us to move over to another path or another pathway. One of those was along the way, instead of being chosen to fly fighter aircraft right out of flight school, I was chosen to be an instructor instead and I saw that as a step backward. But as it turns out, as a flight instructor, you've got to be on top of your game. You've got to not only got to be able to do the maneuvers, you've got to explain to the student how to do it. You've got to give them feedback and teach them how to do it, which is way more than just individual effort. So I got 650 hours as a flight instructor. And surprise to me, a few years later, that turned out to be a huge benefit in competing with, with others, as I just had 
the experience and the confidence that they did not. And you just never know when, like you just said, when that kind of setback actually ends up being a blessing in disguise. So, um, you know, a big part of, of any type of success is overcoming those setbacks and be able to look at them for what they are, which is obviously more difficult when you're a young man of 17 or 18. Uh, but it is very important to not just see it as a setback, but to kind of look at it as maybe, okay, yeah, this isn't ideal, but I'll, I'll do this and I'll learn this and it'll help me in the long run. And I didn't get, did not get into the Air Force Academy first try, so I ended up going to the University of Wisconsin-Madison in their Navy ROTC program. Now, if there had been an Air Force Reserve Officer Training Corps tra program in a college near me, I would have probably gone into it, but it was my home state of Wisconsin when it NROTC, and my advisor, my career counselor within the Navy, had his regular interview with each of us, see what we were going to do, what we were prepared for. And he asked me what I wanted to do with my career, and I said I wanted to become an astronaut, and I was going to apply again to the Air Force Academy. He said, what would you do that for? I, maybe you have to bleep this out, but he's, I'm quoting him. He said, Air Force pilots are a bunch of pussies. They've got a 12,000-foot runway to land on that never moves. Mm -hmm. Best pilots in the world are Navy pilots. If you want to be an astronaut, you should be among the best pilots. Of course, he was a Navy pilot, so he might be a little bit biased. <laughs> but, but that changed my mind about going to the Air Force and went to the Navy instead. Now, years after that, I'm out in the middle of the ocean at night, running low on fuel, and all they have is that tiny little court bobbing in the <laughs> sea to land on. Uh, that I wish then that I was in the Air Force and had a 12,000-foot runway to land on. <laughs> I'm sure. But it was too late. <laughs> so um, on to your Navy career. Uh, did that begin right after you – did it begin after you graduated from uh, from university? Was that when you then joined the Navy? Actually, you have to join the Navy to be in NROTC. Oh, okay, okay. So, so I was uh, ac active in the Navy at, at that time. Okay. But my first – I'd say my first management job was not till five years later. A year at the University of Wisconsin NROTC, four years at the Naval Academy, then graduated as an ensign. My first paid job, so to speak, was was at that time. So when you're, let's go back to uh, your anecdote about you know landing on an aircraft carrier at night in the middle of the ocean, et cetera, et cetera. Talk a little bit about how the Navy trains you for uh, for such a thing, because again, I, I know very little about it, but I'm assuming they just don't, you know, let you practice, you know, straight off landing on an aircraft carrier, because that could obviously be disastrous in a whole bunch of ways. So, how is the what is the training like, uh, you know, at the beginning when you're you're learning to fly these jets, uh, you're learning to land land them on these aircraft carriers how does that how does that work okay well the navy flight training is very physical for first uh, make sure everybody is physically fit and can especially strong in swimming um in ground school on basic mechanics and aerodynamics and so forth 
And then we flew three airplanes before we got into the fleet airplane. First one was this small propeller airplane called the T-34. And I got through that flying in my first solo in about a month. Then you go on to the basic jet, assuming your flight grades are good enough to pass. If they're not, you go to fly helicopters or transports or propeller planes back then. Um, moving on to jets, the basic jet trainer, you spend about a year in that. And in the advanced jet trainer, which is more complicated and faster and more difficult to fly in more complicated missions. So the, um, sorry, I got an inter interruption here. That's okay. So the, um, once, once all the training is done, the most complicated thing to do is land on an aircraft carrier. So all the training leads up to that. And before my first landing in the aircraft carrier, I had 50 practices at the field. And they pick a field that's really dark, so you don't have any visual references, uh, light to distract you. And you do bounces. In other words, every time you land, you go to full power and get airborne again right away, which is what you have to do at the carrier. When you land, slam into the deck, you've got a full power. Because if you miss the wire, you've got to get airborne again safely and come back on again. So there's plenty of practice, and I was well prepared for it. But one of the sections in the book, again, you may need to bleep this out. It's called Scared Shitless. And it was our, about our first landing on the aircraft carrier. Because there's such a buildup. This is true in the military, Army, Air Force, Marines, so forth. When you're doing something dangerous, the guy, the coach, the leader who's preparing you for it wants to insist that you do it right or you could die. Sometimes it's an exaggeration, but it's not behind the boat. So we'd seen all these stories. We'd seen these videos. I saw an F-8 Crusader land and the round down butt pop into two pieces and the canopy comes tumbling by and you can see the pilot still in there. We were told that he lived through that. All that preparation, when it came time for our first carrier landing, we set some kind of record for number of flushes in the men's room. But we all survived. And the very first landing of the carrier, I was so nervous that I went from that airplane to about 120 miles an hour. And you land and you're trapped and you catch the wire. Anyway, the stop is so sudden and violent that throws you ahead where your head would get smashed into the, the dashboard if you didn't have the, the seat belts on. But afterwards, when I took a shower, I saw that it busted blood vessels where the seat belts were. Wow. And I wondered, well, that, is that going to happen every time you land in a carrier? Turns out, of course, it doesn't because eventually you learn to release and relax of sorts as, as, you, as you land. Mm -hmm. And the first first uh, shot out of the catapult, I said, holy shit, people <laughs> do this on a regular basis, it's like getting <laughs> shot out of a cannon. So the first time, the very first time that you are doing this and you're about to land on the aircraft carrier, and like you said, you're nervous, obviously, because who wouldn't be, um, Is what do you... What are you telling yourself, Jer? Is it just as simple as remembering your training, you know, remembering going through the things you're supposed to be doing? 
Um, how do you control your how do you control your nerves in a, in a situation like that? Well, we focus on three big things in landing in an aircraft carrier: meatball, lineup, and angle of attack. Meatball is the orange meatball on the screen, and the indicator that shows it's on the ship itself shows whether you're high or low, and keeping that in the middle. So that's a meatball. Lineup is lining it up with the runway itself, a tiny little 200-foot strip that's on the aircraft carrier. An angle of attack is a substitute for airspeed. It's a needle that shows that the airplane is at the right angle so that when you land, the hook will catch and, and stop you. And you're also at a safe speed that you're not going to stall. So meatball, lineup, angle of attack. That's what our main focus is on. But as you just suggested, your mind can wander on other things. So I, I keep disciplining myself sort of like shooting a free throw in an important free throw in a basketball game and everybody's screaming and yelling and everything, having to block that out. Um, so and I, in the book, I describe my first landing where I'm telling myself not to look at the boat bouncing around, look, meatball lineup angle of attack, don't look at anything else, meatball lineup angle of attack. So what years was it that you, um, what year did you uh, enter the Navy and what year did you leave? I entered the Navy, the um, Navy ROTC program in Wisconsin in 1966. I graduated from the Naval Academy in 71. So 1971 became my first really as work as an officer in the Navy. And at that yeah. time, that was coming up to the end of Vietnam, um, obviously. Uh, did you see deployment uh, in that uh, conflict, or were you too much toward the end of that? Uh, no, I did see a deployment. Um, I guess I haven't even, I'm not much of a salesman. I haven't mentioned the name of the book yet. <laughs> Grandpa's Adventures in the U.S. Navy, Soul Searching on the Way to Mars, Grandpa's Adventures. And one of the chapters deals with my visit to Vietnam and summer training and general quarters and gunboats coming after us in a, in, a, in a destroyer. And that same summer also rode out a Category 5 hurricane on the same destroyer. Um, so that was pretty exciting. Yeah, that doesn't sound like much fun. But the war ended just before I got my wings. And boy, was I relieved. There's no way I wanted to become a prisoner of war. No way I really wanted to get involved with that war, which is one we should have, in my opinion, should have never gotten into in the first first place. And so did, you, we, we did, you feel, did you feel that at that time? Uh, or was that a, an, a, an opinion that you came to later on in life? No, while I was at the Naval Academy, I came to the opinion that we shouldn't be there. And, and um, most of my classmates, although they might not say so, I can tell you that not a single midshipman at the Naval Academy ever said to me, I want to be in that war. We all said, we hope it's done and over with before we have to go. Mm -hmm. So after Vietnam is over, um, where does your military career take you then? Well, I continue to fly. It made it more difficult to get a flying job because the piece of dividend of ending the war meant that half of all of the Navy flying jobs were, were dis disappeared. And so 
that's part of the drama in the book too is how do I continue on to fly fighters when half of those jobs have been erased. Mm -hmm. But I do figure out a way and the, the story weaves around uh, trying to make the, the four major blocks, of course, academy, master's degree, fighter pilot, not just fighter pilot, but top fighter pilot, so that I can qualify to get into test pilot school. The movie Top Gun, is. I also went to Top Gun, so that's part of the book is my analysis of the two Top Gun movies. <laughs> but they, they like to say the best of the best are the ones that are chosen for Top Gun. But test pilot school is <laughs> one level above that, and it's very, very difficult, very competitive to get into test pilot school and continue on astronaut track towards NASA. If you can put a number on it, um, what number, what percentage would you say uh, of pilots end up um, at the highest level of training that you can that you can receive before the astronaut program? It must be a very, very small percentage of pilots that actually get to it and through it. Yeah, Scott, I don't know the actual answer, but it's got to be around 1% or, or less. Yeah, I was I was figuring something like five, but it's, you're, you know, if, even less than that. Um, it, it's obviously a very elite, uh, elite program. So um, let's continue from there. So you're still, even these years later, you're, you're in the Navy, you are a pilot, um, and you're still going through these steps that you have to take. Uh, to reach your ultimate goal. Where where does that, so continue on with the story a little bit, where does that lead you? Uh, do you do you go to that next level? Uh, where, where do you go from there? And, and how do things basically turn out for that dream of yours? Well, I told you about the setback of becoming a flight instructor instead of going to the squadron and flying as a fighter pilot. But when I got to the squadron to and got the training in the F-4 Phantom, which the F-4 Phantom at that time was the fastest plane in the world. It had 16 records, and so it was really an exciting machine. Um, by the time I got to that, that point, I did very well in training, but um, when I got passed on to the, to the real job in a fighter squadron, the VF-102 Diamondbacks, I was not welcomed with open arms. They were about to go on cruise and I was a rookie pilot, they called a nugget, and they didn't need one more nugget just before they go on cruise um, because it's such a dangerous business. Um, if you're a rookie baseball player and your manager may be concerned about your ability to handle the stresses of the noise of the big game and the major leagues and so forth, and if he doesn't work out, you lose some games. But when the rookie doesn't work out in a fighter squadron, you lose some lives. And that did happen to us on the cruise as well. Mm. So part of this one chapter is called Life and Death in a Fighter Squadron. And it's how we dealt with people who were who were killed, one of them my roommate. So part of the story is dealing with my roommate being killed um, and seeing his ghost and um, living living life continued to fly even though somebody close to you has been killed. By the way, Scott, throughout the whole book, I lose, I don't identify all of them, but I lose 31 squadron mates. 
This is so-called peacetime, Cold War, Soviet Union, peacetime, 31 died from air aircraft incidents or accidents. Wow. So it's just something that one has to learn to deal with. And there's no such thing as grief counseling in the Navy or a Navy squadron. You suck it up or you leave. Mm -hmm. And so all of these would have been training accidents? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I've, you know, I've talked to other uh, people that have been in the military that have seen combat um, that have been to Afghanistan, Iraq, you name it. And, you know, it always sort of interests me about that first time that you lose a friend, that you lose a colleague, uh, because like you say, there's no uh, group meetings or, you know, there's no counseling sessions, anything like that. So how do you individually deal with that? And how do you deal with that as a group when something like that happens, especially for you, like when it happened to you for the first time that you lost a friend or a colleague? Yes, I had lost some friends before then, but none so close to me as a roommate. And my job as the roommate was to pack up all of his stuff and send it home, clear, make sure that nothing embarrassing was sent home to his wife. In this case, uh, there, there were no such things. But I remember wanting to send his flight jacket and medals back home because he had a son. And unfortunately, his wife had another child on the way. Very sad situation. Mm -hmm. But instead of just packing up the flight jacket and stuff, even though I was told not to send anything. I should have just packed it up and sent it. And I could ask for forgiveness later. But when I asked permission from the commanding officer to send it, he didn't allow me to. And it's one of those things in life where I said, I, sh I should have just done it, not asked ask permission. But the way they deal with the death in Navy fighter squadron is, as soon as possible that you know somebody is gone, erase every bit of evidence from them. We had the greeny board, we had the lockers, we had the mailboxes, names gone as soon as possible. And for the most part, they don't talk about it. And in order to, to, to survive a situation like that, everybody says, I will never do whatever he did. I won't make the same mistake he did. Or if they try to paint the scenario that I'm going to survive because I'm not going to fall into the same trap that he did. Mm -hmm. Now, how I reacted to it, I was um, pretty stoic. And I flew a one-day flight and a night flight and was was okay. But then the uh, I had a night flight and the landing signal officer, the voice on the radio talking to you, was the same voice the night that uh, Denny, Brian and Denny uh, took it. And I... I reacted to it badly. Mm -hmm. I went around five times to get aboard. And they had to scratch the rest of the operation just to get me. They had to refuel three times mm -hmm. at night, dark, with the leans. Um, so my last, my fifth approach, I said um, to, to my maker, I asked, there, there's a saying in, in the, in World War One, there are no atheists in a foxhole. Well, my saying was, there are no atheists behind the boat at night. And so I said, Lord, uh, I've, 
I'm completely wrung out. I got nothing left. You've got the aircraft. So I let him fly it down to landing. Did a perfect three three wire landing. I said, okay, I've got it back now. <laughs> so let's move forward a bit. Now you um, you obviously have your your career in the Navy. Um, lots of great stories from that. Like a lot of military people, have a bunch of great stories. When does the idea first hit you that you want to get these stories down on paper and even turn them into a book? Well, if, at the time I went through this, well, well, let me see what I have about the last chapter. Let me just uh, read this paragraph. It summarizes, uh, I think it answers your question. After 19 years of climbing the ladder to become an astronaut, I faced a daunting decision. I was chosen to be the first Navy fighter pilot to test the newest fighter in the world, the F-18 Hornet. Mm. I was at the top of the world and on trajectory easily to get to NASA. But what they were asking me to do was to perfect the aircraft's ability to deliver weapons of mass destruction, to efficiently kill huge numbers of people. The final two chapters of the book deal with my reaction to that assignment and how the Navy responded to it. So, back to your question. <laughs> so, I'm just trying to let that sink in for a minute. Um, so, you mentioned earlier that you were always um, opposed to the war in Vietnam. And then now going forward, you're mentioning that you have this unease with uh, this new fighter jet and what it's made for, basically, mass weapons of mass destruction. Were you always, um, was that always something about you that you were always, um, you know, because some people get into the military and they just want to, they want to go fight, they want to go, you know, do whatever. Were you always someone that was more into the exploration? Uh, you know, because obviously being an astronaut is all about exploration. Were you always more into the exploration and, and the learning and so on? And, you know, not so much into the war, the military aspect, that kind of thing? That's a great question, Scott. And I like the way you placed it. Yes, I was into the exploration. I was into getting in but these are all the steps I had to go through in order to get there. Mm -hmm. But I had not faced a step where I was told that I needed to um, kill massive numbers of people. Uh, the mission for the F-4 Phantom was to defend the ship, defend the country against Soviet bombers. Um, and we did, yes, drop some dumb bombs on military, simulated military targets. But I never had a mission that was to drop tactical nuclear weapons. The type at this time were seven times bigger than the ones on, dropped on Nagasaki or Hiroshima, huge, and dropped over a large city, could easily wipe out a million people and their pets. And it was something that I just could not agree to do. Um, and how the Navy dealt with that objection is, is what's found in the last couple chapters of the book. So, that's uh, um, again the obviously the the F eighteen very technically at the time very technically advanced the most technically advanced 
uh, fighter jet out there, obviously. So did you ever uh, get to fly that plane? Uh, no, I did not. But I did get an assignment. I asked for an assignment as a non-combatant. So I became the project manager for a program for air aerial, that's air-to-air -air refueling of the F-18. Okay. So I was the head of that project and it was successful. No, I never flew the plane. The the at the time was called the F-18 rather than the F-A-18, F for fighter, A for attack. But they had plans to make it an attack airplane as well. So it was supposed to replace both fighters and attack bombers that are on aircraft carriers. So it was designed to replace both of them. And that's how I ended up with that mission. Now, if my mission with the airplane had been to test its ability to land on aircraft carriers or dogfighting or even dropping conventional bombs on military targets, I wouldn't have given a second thought, but spend two years of my life perfecting its ability to kill massive numbers of people efficiently was just outside my religious teaching, outside my moral values. Especially in the middle of the Cold War when that was at any given, mo any given moment, seemingly minutes away, that you might have to actually use that capability. Yes, that was a, that was a concern. Mm -hmm. And once the Cold War ended, uh, President H.W. Bush removed all the, tech, all the nuclear weapons from Navy surface ships. So no, nobody had to face that same dilemma that I did anymore. Now, he didn't do it for me. Mm -hmm. He did it for the country. Um, but also, I was Catholic at the time, and the Catholic bishops supported, not supported me specifically, but su not only supported people in the military, but said, if you are in the chain of command of nuclear weapons, you should make every effort to remove yourself and find a new job because of the objection of the church. Mm. Let's get to uh, the book itself. Um, when did the process of writing the book begin? Um, did you, were you someone that, you know, kept a journal, kept notes during your your naval days, or was did you start writing these stories down after? How did that process get started? Earlier, I said, well, back to your question, because I had forgotten that. But that was part of your question, what yeah. I started on, on writing the book. Um, I didn't write the book right away, although I saved. My wife saved a scrapbook of lots of stuff. Every pilot has a flight logbook. And those are really valuable in identifying the date, the time, the airplane, who was with you and what your mission was and total time. So that came in handy. I saved performance evaluations called fitness reports. So, so I saved a lot of things. But I didn't have any inclination to write the book soon because pretty much everybody disagreed with what I had done. Uh, everybody in uniform said, Jerry, we accept that this is your personal conviction and we support you in following your personal conviction, but I wouldn't do the same thing or I couldn't do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And even in the family, the only one person in my whole family, my brother Tom was the one that said, I support what you did. I am doing exactly the same thing if I were in your shoes. Most people said, um, they must be able, there must have been some oath that you would have, you could have done that, still go on to NASA. So it wasn't until after raising my children, I told them stories, dozens of stories over the years. And as they grew older, they wanted and they understood more of it. They said, could you please write this 
in a book for the grandchildren. So uh, I did, didn't get to it until after I retired, which I retired at age 73. Mm. And then I started it, to taking notes and so forth, and dug out all the uh, research on it. And the year 2023, I spent, I worked on it pretty much full time. It's my first book ever, and now I understand how difficult it is <laughs> to, to write a book. Turned out to be 800 pages, oh. including pictures, a lot of pictures and diagrams, too. Yeah. And my family and friends who helped me review it uh, and were editing it all the way through. Um, but it's in two volumes. So Grandpa's Adventures in the U.S. Navy, Volume 1, is supposed to be released by Amazon tomorrow, available on paperback, hard copy, and Kindle. And Audible will be coming along shortly. And is it, uh, did you go through a publisher? Or is it self-published? Uh, what, what is that? This, it's sort of a hybrid between self-publish and publisher. Um, Amazon paid for, I'd say, at least 80% of it. But I, I'm into it, including marketing, social media marketing, and other stuff. I'm into it for about $15,000. Mm-hmm. And so um, this uh, podcast will not air until uh, this coming Sunday. So that means the book will be out a few days. So obviously we can't look into the future. But on the eve of its being released, what are your, uh, what are your feelings right now about that? What are your thoughts? Is it obviously there's excitement? Is there apprehension? What, what is, what's on your mind as the book gets this close to being released? Well, I created a free PDF version that I shared with family and friends and some people on Facebook and uh, LinkedIn and so forth. So there are about 100 copies out there. And I asked everybody who got a free copy to be prepared to submit a book review on okay. day one, which would be tomorrow the 15th. And they shared their book reviews with me. And wow, Scott, and it's really gratifying. Um, one old friend of mine, I just want to read the final paragraph he put in his I love this book. I wish I read it when I was a young adult because it's filled with wisdom, great lessons of morality, God, and courage. Jerry had a vision and locked onto it, so very inspiring. This book is a gift, a gift for humanity and how to achieve what it takes to become the right stuff. The ending is an unexpected surprise that not only leave you speechless, but will also give you faith in your fellow man. So I'm, I'm really optimistic because I'm getting a lot of those back from people who've read the, the PDF version. And, and of course, I'm excited and a little bit nervous. Yeah, <laughs> of, course. of course. With your uh, permission, I'd like to read a little one minute uh, blurb that Amazon and I developed together to promote. Absolutely. Is that okay? Yes, for sure. Grandpa's Adventures in the US Navy, Soul Searching on the Way to Mars. If you like stories of high adventure or life and death hang in the balance, you've come to the right place. I should have been dead more than a dozen times. If you want to know what it's like to be on astronaut track and how to go from obscurity to NASA's doorstep, this book will give you some clues. You'll be riding along with me as we take a spin in the fastest fighter jet. You'll not only break the sound barrier together, we'll go more than two times the speed of sound and almost die doing it. You'll learn what it takes 
I wanted to know and to learn what it's like to get shot out of a cannon that is an aircraft carrier catapult will survive a Category 5 hurricane on a U.S. Navy destroyer. You'll share a cell with me in prisoner of war camp. We'll experience the joy of being in a coffin filled with garbage. Yuck. <laughs> we'll share five weeks of adventure at the real Top Gun Fighter Weapons School. We'll meet the Soviet defector who stole the MiG-25. And there'll still be some time left over for humor, ghosts, and romance. Sounds like a great, uh, a great uh, first volume. So, um, is volume number two uh, under? Is it what? What stage is volume two at? Is it written? Is it in the editing stage? Where Where do you sit with that one? It's it's complete. My part of it's done. It's in the editing stage. They'll probably send it back to me for one more look at it, but it should be released within a couple of weeks after the volume one. Oh wow! Perfect. That's great. Well, um, before we wrap this up, Jerry, I'm just going to give you an opportunity to share with everybody where we can find you. Um, if you want to share a website, social media, anything that you want to share, now is your chance. Uh, I'm, I'm on Facebook as Jerry Warner, J-E-R-R-Y, Warner, W-E-R-N-E-R. I'm also on Gmail. JerryWerner01 at gmail.com. That's J-E-R-W-E-R-N-E-R-01 at gmail.com. Perfect. But, but they don't need to contact me directly. They can go directly to Amazon.com and type in Grandpa's Adventures in the U.S. Navy, and it should pop up. Well, by the time uh, this is released, I will have found the link and put it on the description. So I encourage everyone to go check it out. I'm definitely going to check it out. Sounds like a great read. And uh, Jerry, I thank you for your time today, and I wish you all the best with this book and uh, the next one, of course. Thank you very much, Scott. Have a great day. Thank you. I appreciate your time.